You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Well, happy Sunday and happy Thanksgiving, Mosaic Church. Glad to see you all here today. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. My name is Brett Milliken, one of the pastors here. And I know our Thanksgiving was, was pretty fantastic. We had full day of food on Thursday, followed by some flag football on Saturday, followed by me barely being able to get out of bed on Saturday because my knee was swollen and I could barely walk. And nothing significant happened. I just turned 46 a few weeks ago, and apparently when you hit 46, parts of your body just stop functioning when you push them too hard. So welcome. I will not be moving around on the stage this morning. I will be sitting right here. But I hope you had a wonderful holiday season. Looking forward to all that God's got for us over these next few weeks as we get closer and closer to celebrating Christmas together. So we are doing our last last message in our current cities, Living Out of a Living Hope today, uh, where we've been walking through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And as we get going today, as we get started today, let me just start by asking you a simple question. What do you most need when life gets hard? I think back to my freshman year in high school where my football coach really took me under his wings. I was a 14-year-old freshman who was playing on the varsity squad and experiencing a locker room full of 17 and 18-year-old young men who would just say we're not making the wisest of choices in life. And Coach Mai stepped in and treated me like a son. He kept me focused on all the right things and doing my work, and he made a huge difference in my life during that first semester of my high school career. Unfortunately, later that year in the spring of 1993, on what seemed like just a routine school day, our our team was called into uh, a meeting room and we were given the announcement that Coach Mize had actually been murdered the previous night. And I remember falling out of my chair and just hitting the floor in that moment in disbelief. Now, obviously our team was completely shook, devastated, uh, but that afternoon, a a group of parents and the rest of our coaches kind of rallied around us. We began to embrace one another. And as we came together, we were able to walk through what still to this day remains an extremely difficult moment in my life. But we came out on the other side stronger and better together. And I've been in many similar situations since then, as I'm sure you have too, like the loss of someone that you love, the diagnosis that you didn't want, the loss of a job, the mistreatment, abuse, or betrayal by someone close to you, all moments where we inherently desire the presence of others to be with us in that time of trouble and pain. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, suffering is not good in itself. What is good in any painful experience is for the sufferer, his submission to the will of God, and for the spectators, the compassion aroused and the acts of mercy to which it leads. So what do you most need When life gets hard, I think what we most need in those moments is not answers, but others. Not an explanation that might remove the pain, but a community to walk us through the pain that we rightly experience. And the reason we need others more than answers is because pain and suffering, they, they don't just hurt us, they isolate us. I mean, look no further than 2020. It wasn't just the social distancing that caused us to feel alone. It was the fear 
that COVID and racial injustice and the politicalization of all of it produced and left us feeling an overwhelming sense of loneliness. We could all answer the question as to what was causing that pain, why it was happening, but just knowing why couldn't take away that feeling of isolation and loneliness, could it? See, when we suffer, what we most need is a community to keep us anchored to the truth that in that moment of pain, we are still loved and we're not alone. It's because we're made in the image of a triune God, a God that exists as a community. We are hardwired to belong to loving community ourselves. And the brokenness and the pain that we experience in this world leaves us feeling exiled from that design, exiled from God, and exiled from one another. As Lewis said in those moments, the person suffering needs to know that God is still at work. And through the compassion and empathy shown through the people around them, that proves to be true. So I think Paul understood this reality, and this is why he closes this letter to the Thessalonians by writing this, chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, so that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Read all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, as we've seen throughout this letter, though this Christian community was struggling, they were remaining faithful to the call of the gospel. They were facing incredible pressure and persecution from their surrounding culture, but remaining faithful together. Their friends and relatives had been killed. Jobs had likely been lost. The pressure they were up against was immense. And they were doing a good job of caring for one another in this time of need. But Paul knew, like the rest of us know, that as trouble and pain linger, it becomes increasingly tempting to feel isolated and disconnected from the community that you belong to. See, Paul, like a good coach, is giving his best kind of halftime speech here to remind them that even though it feels like the game is lost, that they actually already have a guaranteed victory in Christ Jesus, which should provide the motivation for them to keep going. And so his very last words communicate that he communicates, they serve as a reminder to them to remind each other of the truth of this victory. The impact that that victory has on their relationships and the role that those relationships play in helping them to remain faithful to the call of God. And as we look at Paul's closing thoughts here, I think he's also calling us to remember this truth. That God uses gospel community to carry us through our hardest defeats and into our greatest victory. So the pressures of life, the brokenness of our world, and a very real spiritual enemy all seek to tear that community apart. So I want to answer three questions today that I think will enable us to live out of a living hope as a community, the way these Thessalonians were able to do. 
Number one, I want to answer what is the greatest threat to gospel community? Second, how can we defend ourselves against that threat? And third, where do we find the strength to keep fighting? So what's the greatest threat to gospel community? Well, in short, the greatest threat to gospel community is fear. If you ever watched a pride of lions hunt, you know that the way they succeed is by spooking the herd, causing them all to scatter and isolating the weakest and the most vulnerable so they can move in for the kill. See, fear causes division. Division leads to isolation and isolation leaves you vulnerable for attack. So the being that scripture calls the Satan, which literally just means the adversary, uses the same tactic in our lives as well. He uses fear to cause cause us to distance ourselves from others so that he can isolate us in our thoughts and our desires, making us weak and susceptible to his lies. So he can pick us off one by one. In his book, Life Together, the German pastor and concentration camp prisoner, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, put it like this. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. See, most often it isn't the threat of physical pain that the enemy uses to accomplish this, but the threat of relational pain. In short, it's the fear of rejection. You see, because we're made to belong, rejection is our greatest fear. And the thing about fear is this, it always makes you reach for whatever you think will give you control of your situation. Let me just show you a few uh, pictures I dug up from a haunted house uh, this past fall. What do you notice about every single one of their hands? Reaching, grasping, trying to stabilize in their moment of fear. See, our natural instinct is to reach for control when things feel unsafe. And when we experience that fear in our relationships, we tend to reach in one of two directions. We either put up walls and withdraw, or we put up a false version of ourselves and hide. We either get big and loud, or silent and apathetic. And here in this passage, Paul shows us two particular ways that this kind of fear threatens our connection to the community God wants to use to bring victory in our lives. First, he addresses the way that fear impacts our relationship with authority. We see in verses 12 and 13, he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, Paul, knowing that the culture of Thessalonica was one of corruption and mistrust when it came to the cultural leaders, is encouraging this gospel community to not allow their hearts to be swayed in that same direction when it comes to their spiritual leaders. See, our relationship with authority has been messy and complex ever since the Garden of Eden. And the reason for that messiness is the same today as it was back then. And it's this. It's the accusation that arises in our hearts that says those who lead me are not for me. This happens in how we view our parents, teachers, politicians, even pastors at times. It's like there's this inherent fear that if someone else has authority in my life, they must have bad intentions and therefore cannot be trusted. Now listen, there are leaders who have bad intentions. History is replete with those examples. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about abusive authority. He's talking about godly authority who is genuinely seeking to honor God and serve the people they've been leading. 
See, those leaders, be it politicians, teachers, parents, or pastors, listen, they might make a leadership decision that you don't agree with. And maybe a decision that wasn't the absolute best decision to be made. But Paul is saying in those moments, how you respond says more about you than it does about them as a leader. So will you choose to love and believe the best in those moments, or will you allow fear and accusation to rise up in your heart like Adam and Eve did? So when we let fear of authority grip our hearts, we reach for control through what I like to call degrading subversion. See, there's a difference between critique to a leader, giving, giving critique to a leader, and degrading a leader. See, critique is recognizing an opportunity to do something better and humbly submitting that to those in a position to make the decisions. But degrading a leader is simply pointing out what you find wrong because deep down you think you could do it better. See, critique seeks the overall success of the whole, but degrading seeks to pull another down for the elevation of self. I'll give you an example. When King David fell short as a leader, Nathan the prophet sternly yet humbly submitted his critique to David. But Absalom, the son of David, sought to degrade his father and overthrow him as king. See, Nathan submitted his critique to David in private, and it helped the nation as a whole. But Absalom degraded his father publicly under the justification that he was bringing justice to the people, and it ended up tearing the nation apart. See, critique seeks stronger unity, but degrading brings division. And that division destroys the community and leads to the feeling of exile, loneliness, and isolation. So that fear-filled accusation towards authority is what got Lucifer removed from God's presence in heaven. Adam and Eve removed from God's presence in the garden, and Israel exiled from the promised land. So Paul isn't saying you can't or shouldn't address your concerns with the authorities in your life. I mean, if you feel something is unjust, something is inappropriate, then by all means, have the conversations with the people that it needs to be had with. So Paul isn't saying to ignore your concerns, but he is saying how you address that, address them makes all the difference in the world. So you can respect and esteem or degrade and subvert. A second, Paul addresses the way fear affects our view of one another through fear and comparison. Verses 13 to 15, he says, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to everyone. Now, what does it look like to be at peace with someone? Well, I think it looks like seeking their well-being above your own. It looks like valuing another for who they are rather than resenting them for who they're not. I think peace in a relationship looks like consideration for one another, considering one another's perspectives, their background, their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions rather than just demanding that they do all of those things for you. See, peace is when the primary question being asked between two people is, how can I love you better? Now, this entire letter, we've seen the Thessalonians have been doing that exact thing. So why would Paul feel the need to use his final words to tell them to be at peace among themselves? Well, I think it's because Paul knew what you and I know. When trouble comes and pressure mounts, it's only a matter of time before we begin comparing our situation with the situations of others. I, mean, I know for me, when I'm experiencing trouble and pain, I tend to ask, well, why is this happening to me and not to them? 
or when someone else is having trouble and experiencing pain, I tend to think if they had just listened to me, that wouldn't have happened. Or maybe I'm the only one. See, when that fear hits, we seek to control by either deflating the value of others or inflating the value of ourselves. All in an attempt to regain that sense of love and acceptance that we so desperately feel we deserve. And when we allow ourselves to get to that place of comparison, then like Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, division creeps in and destroys our relationships with the people God has placed in our lives. See, and this is why fear is the greatest threat to gospel community because it produces a need to control others rather than a desire to serve others. See, relational fear keeps us in a constant state of relational fight or flight. It leaves us feeling anxious, constantly grasping for what we feel can rescue us from that place of insecurity. So when our focus is turned inward like that, then we lose sight of the community that God has blessed us with and the grace and the mercy God wants to bring us through that very community. And if that's the case, then what does Paul give us as the answer to our first question? Well, he gives us our second question. How can we defend ourselves against that threat? What is the only thing that can guard our hearts from those fears that threaten to tear apart the gospel community God has called us to be a part of? Well, according to scripture, it's something that's called perfect love. In 1 John 4, 18, John writes this. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, fear keeps us in a state of grasping, but love keeps us in a state of giving. I mean, think about it. When Adam and Eve allowed fear to take over in their hearts, what did they do? They grasped for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To compare that to the language Paul uses when talking about the love of Christ and another letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter two, he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be what? Grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, Consider what Paul is saying here. Was Jesus ever afraid? Did he ever face rejection from others, from his culture, from his friends, maybe even from God himself as he hung on the cross? Well, the answer to those questions is yes, 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 and yes. And if you're new to church or Christianity, that may come as a surprise to you, but all through the gospels, we see moment after moment where Jesus is in anguish, where Jesus needs to get away and be alone because he's overwhelmed with the rejection that he knows he's about to face. See, Jesus wasn't afraid of the physical pain of the cross. I'm sure he wasn't looking forward to it, but his anguish was caused by the relational pain that he knew he was about to experience. This is why he sweat drops of blood in the garden. It's why when Judas showed up, he said, do you betray me with a kiss, Judas? It's why when he's on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Betrayed, forsaken. That's rejection language. That's relational pain language. And in the midst of all that pain, Jesus could have reached for control if he wanted to. He could have called down a legion of angels to put an end to it all if he wanted to. 
He could have demanded his own will rather than submitting to the will of the Father if he wanted to. He could have taken control and eliminated all of that relational pain and fear. Jesus most definitely could have grasped. And yet he didn't. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He responded to that fear with perfect love. And rather than trying to protect himself from others, he willingly gave himself for the sake of the very ones who were trying to do him the most harm. See, Paul knew this firsthand. You see, before Paul met Jesus, Paul had allowed fear to lead him to arresting and murdering Christians. And in the midst of that fear, Paul encountered the perfect love of Christ on the road to Damascus. And that love changed him from a persecutor of Christians to a planter of churches. And this is why he's reminding the Thessalonians of this truth in his final words to them. And as we saw a few weeks ago in chapter three, Paul's prayer for them was this. He said, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And here in the verses we just read, he doubles down on this encouragement by saying, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, Paul is saying, I know the pressure is building and it feels like you may not be able to hang on, Thessalonians, but you can't let the fear and the insecurity surrounding you move you into a place of self-preservation. You must remain steadfast in your love for God and for one another. Don't be critical of your leaders. Esteem them in love as they do their best to love and serve you. Don't allow that fear to cause frustration or envy with one another. Don't let it make you seek revenge when you feel you've been treated wrongly. Instead, be at peace with one another as you seek to do good to one another in love. See, and I think we need to hear this as much today as they did 2,000 years ago because our culture has never been more divisive, more anxious, more fear-driven. And if we are not mindful and intentional with how we respond to that fear that rises up in our own hearts, then eventually we'll find ourselves focused only on what we feel we need rather than on what God has put inside of us to give away. We'll only ask what's in the community for me instead of what has God put in me for this community. But how can we do this? How can we find the strength to continue to choose love and resist that fear? Where do we find the strength to keep fighting? Well, we have to be more like Jesus. So read your Bible and try harder and be less fearful and more loving. Good night. Now, that would not be good news, would it? If that's what Paul was telling us here, do more, try harder. The reality is, left to our own devices and our own strength, fear is where we will always end up. Now, Paul points us in the right direction towards the end of this beautiful letter. Verses 23 and 24, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Did you catch that? Paul isn't saying we overcome our fear or that we can love in our own strength. He says we have to tap into the strength of someone else. How can we be at peace with one another? Paul says by being sanctified by the God of peace. 
How can we not repay evil for evil? He says it's by remembering we're not blameless ourselves, but we are kept blameless by him. In other words, Paul's saying that the kind of loving community, the way we accomplish that isn't by trying to do more for Jesus, but by remembering what Jesus has already done for you. Not by doing our best to live for Jesus, but by allowing Jesus' life to come alive in and through you. See, Jesus said we have to be branches that are grafted into a vine. So the branch doesn't produce the fruit on its own. It, the fruit comes from the source of life, the DNA that the vine feeds into the branch. But it has to be an intertwining of the fibers, a latching into. See, it's a simple principle. You cannot give something you do not possess. Like you can't give someone $100 if you don't have $100. You can't give someone a ride if you don't have a car. You can't be at peace with others if you don't have peace yourself. And you can't love unconditionally unless you're unconditionally loved. There's only one place in the universe where perfect, unconditional love exists. And that's in the heart of God. Let me explain what I mean by that. See, apart from God, every relationship we experience is transactional in one way or another. Meaning that every human relationship that you have is with someone who needs something from you because we're all broken. We're all incomplete. So we all carry that sense of exile and rejection around with us everywhere we go. I'm sure we, we say we love someone, but what tends to happen the moment you feel that that person isn't giving you what you want or need? Hmm? You withdraw, you withhold. Do you get big and loud and dominate? See, in that moment, you feel something is being taken from you. You grasp to take it back. See, is it the silent treatment? The cold shoulder? The demanding and the criticizing of your spouse, maybe? Your kids? See, what the world calls love is really just enjoying how someone makes you feel. And the moment that changes, we get loud and dominant, or we go silent and withdraw. So we cannot truly love one another unconditionally, perfectly, because we're all lacking something. We're all lacking that sense that we truly belong. In order to love one another perfectly, we have to have a source of perfect love that we can tap into, that we can pull from. And God, as the only perfectly complete being in the universe, is the only one who can provide that kind of love. And how does he do that? Well, Paul says elsewhere that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we actually deserve to be rejected because of our sin, Jesus drew near and he brought us into his family. See, Paul's final plea to the Thessalonians is for them to remember that not only did Jesus die to bring them into a relationship with himself, but that he rose from the dead and will be coming back at some point in the future. So in other words, it isn't just that Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to die for you. It's that he defeated death and is alive and still perfectly loving you today, right now, at this very moment, seated in the heavenly places, the king of the universe is loving you. 
Because that is true. That means that source of perfect, unconditional love is available to you today, right now, in this very moment. It means the king of the universe loves you today, that he will never leave you or forsake you today, that you belong to him today. And there is no thing and no person on this planet that can add to or take away from that love and that belonging. Which should mean fear has no power over us. See, this is the whole point of the gospel. We're made to reflect God's perfect love out into the world is what Genesis tells us. But accusation produced fear. Fear led to idolatry. Idolatry gave birth to sin and sin broke the world. So that today we all go about doing whatever we can to prove that we belong. To prove that we're worthy of love. But then Jesus came in pursuit of his broken creation. And when he went to the cross, it wasn't just to forgive us of our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. It was to reconcile us back to our unconditionally loving relationship with our unconditionally loving God so that his perfect unconditional love could once again flow into and through us out into the broken world that so desperately needs to know it. And the only way the world can see and experience that kind of love is through a community of people who love one another regardless of their ethnic differences, their skin colors, their socioeconomic statuses, their languages, their political parties, on and on I could go. A people who can overcome their fears because the one they all worship has overcome death itself. And so Paul finishes his admonition with this statement. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's in a world full of fear and anxiety and divisiveness. How can we be the kind of community that shows others the perfect love of Christ? Well, it's by remembering we are unconditionally loved by a God who was so committed he was willing to die for us, but is so powerful that not even death could hold him. So when we hold to that truth, perfect love cast out all fear. So I want to leave you with three questions that I ask myself on a daily, if not multiple times a day basis that helps me to continue fighting for the community that God has blessed me with, both my biological family and my spiritual family. When I find myself feeling frustrated, anxious, wanting to withdraw, wanting to seek vengeance, wanting to lash out, wanting to defend myself, wanting to do all the things that threaten the community God has given me. Here's the three questions I ask myself. First, what am I afraid of in this moment? What do I feel is being taken from me? What do I feel I'm lacking in this moment? Second, what is that fear making me want to do? What am I trying to reach for in order to regain control of my situation? What idol am I chasing? And number three, if I really trust Jesus' love is enough for me, what would I do differently? What am I afraid of? What is that fear making me want to do? If I really trust that Jesus loves me the way he says he does, and he is alive and seated on the throne today, then what 
what I do differently. I want to challenge you and encourage you. Later today, when that thought rises up in your mind, maybe tomorrow morning, maybe tonight when the sink is full of dirty dishes again, or your kid won't sleep through the night, or that person posts something on social media that makes you want to immediately respond because you've got to get your point across. Take a beat, take a breath, and ask yourself, what am I afraid of right now? What is that fear making me want to do? If I really trust that Jesus' love is enough for me, what would I do differently? Let me pray for us. Lord, in the place where we've just celebrated Thanksgiving and are about to begin Advent, we find ourselves remembering the things you've done and looking forward to the things that are coming. And yet also know in this season, for many, what's been done is painful and what might be coming is fearful. Well, and for everyone in this room, whether we're looking forward to the holidays or not, Lord, we all carry that sense of insecurity and brokenness and rejection. Always feeling like we have to do more and more and more to prove our value and our worth. And always feeling like we're right on the, the precipice and the edge of people finding out who we really are. And in the midst of that brokenness, you step in. You say, I know you completely. I knit you together in your mother's womb. Every hair on your head is numbered. Every day that you'd ever live was written in my book of life before one of them ever came to pass. I know every thought. I know every word. And yet with all of that knowledge of who we are, you still choose us. You still love us. You still call us your own. You still Welcome us home to a place where we can belong for eternity. So, Lord, I just want to speak to every fear and accusation that the enemy uses to cause us to run, to scatter, to isolate. I say no to those in the name of Jesus. So those accusations, that fear stops today in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, would you speak a better and truer word that says, I love you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never reject you. Jesus, we thank you for taking that rejection on our behalf so that we could have the guaranteed promise through the resurrection power of your name we have a forever home in the heart of God. Lord, let that be the identity from which we step out into the world. Lord, remind us in those moments that everything we could ever need, we already have in Christ. And now everything you've placed inside of us, we can give away, expecting nothing in return. For that's gospel love. That's what the church is supposed to be. And by your grace, in the power of your spirit. That is what we can be. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.